0: The Assad regime's latest assault on the Syrian people is again targeting civilians and even the hospitals that treat injured survivors. The Islamic Republic of Iran and Russia are aiding and abetting this barbarism. Also underway, efforts by Iran's rulers to colonize Syria. The so-called international community is mostly turning a blind eye and in some cases, actually facilitating the continuing carnage, occupation, and population displacements. To better understand who is committing these war crimes and why, I'm joined by Moaz Mustafa, Executive Director of the Syrian Emergency Task Force, and David Adesnik, FTD's Director of Research. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Where you came from and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, I was
2: born in Damascus, Syria, and I moved to the United States around the age of 10. After, you know, graduating high school and college here, I worked on the hill. At the beginning of the Arab Spring, watching sort of, you know, millions of people going out and not protesting uh, the United States or Israel or something else, but protesting their own authoritarian uh, regimes, didn't know or didn't expect this at all, that, that in Syria, a place where the wall of fear was just so thick, the walls had ears, people are terrified to speak out. Never thought in a million years that we would see people there, going out and calling for their unalienable rights. When I watched that happen at the country where I was born, I decided that I would work uh, here to try to be a bridge for the voice of the countless civilians uh, calling for their, for their rights and, and wanted to try to bring their voices to the halls of power here in Washington.
0: And that's what you're doing full-time. Talk a little bit about the organization.
2: Sure, sure. So we run an organization called the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization based here in D.C., um, but we've got offices uh, in other places in the United States and also uh, inside Syria and on uh, the borders. Um, and we do really three main lines of work. We do humanitarian work. So we run bakeries, school for orphans, women's center. Um, uh, we send thousands of uh, sort of uh, dollars in aid regularly, both to Idlib province and other places inside Syria, like Rukban camp, um, We also do political advocacy here. So we try to push for policy that is focused on the saving of civilians and ending the killing in Syria um, that's being perpetrated on a daily basis. And today, as we sit here, by Iran, Russia, and the Assad Mm -hmm. regime. Um, And we also work on documenting war crimes and and pursuing prosecutions against these war criminals, uh, both in national courts and in any courts that we can get. Um, Part of that work uh, has been a partnership with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, Mm. uh, where we actually have a um, a Syria exhibit that I encourage everyone uh, to go and visit uh, that shows the ongoing atrocities uh, and helps us uh, in raising awareness. Wow. And,
0: and David Adesnik, you're with us also today. I want to bring you in your course here at FDD, but as a scholar, you've been looking at this part of the world for a fairly long time.
1: Yeah, and we have a new report out uh, called Burning Bridge or the Iranian land corridor to the Mediterranean. Um, If you've been following the Syria debate in the capital for uh, the past year or so, two years, you've heard the president, the secretary of state, the previous secretary of state and the national security advisor all talk about this land bridge or arc of influence that Iran is trying to establish from its own borders to the Mediterranean. And people have started to look at it a little more closely to understand what it's about. But we think we've probably put together the most comprehensive, look there is, uh, looking at the roots, looking at the advantages of some over others, and looking at the underlying strategy that Iran, uh, it just has a long-term interest in Syria, especially as a base for aggression against Israel in the future, and it just can't afford to be cut off.
0: For, for years, there was the Assad regime, really the Assad dynasty. It was one family that was that that, that was ruling this this country, and Bashar al-Assad was, I think, a, a, a much more of a despot than a lot of people realized, because years ago People say, so, yeah, you can go to Damascus, it's beautiful. You can go to Aleppo, it's a beautiful place, it's historic. I don't think everyone realized how despotic the regime was. Maybe say just a few words about that, and then we'll sit down and we'll talk about what happened and what changed, which you alluded to, and I want to focus on for a moment.
2: Growing up in Syria, I remember that if we wanted to joke about something that the, the dictator in Damascus had done on TV, let's say he sneezed funny, in our own homes, we would have to whisper uh, to each other about, you know, oh, he coughed funny on TV. Um, that is the amount of fear that existed. That describes what kind of dynasty the Assad family's ruling of, of, of Syria has been. And Bashar al-Assad, who tried to peg himself as some sort of Western-educated reformer, was very, very far from it.
0: In 2011, people I knew were smart people, they were, um, they were by no means extremists. They were not Islamists. They were not jihadists. They were looking for a little bit more freedom, a little bit more political participation. They were demonstrating peacefully. And we, I have to say here at FDD, I think everybody was saying we should support them. We were talking to people in the State Department and the Obama administration saying these people deserve some support. We're not talking about exporting democracy. We're talking about supporting people who want a more democratic way of life,
2: right. um, what happened? By the dictator's own admission, it was 9 to 12 months of nonviolent peaceful protests where bare chests were met with bullets and unlawful arrests while the world watched, while the, unfortunately the administration here and, and the international community overall did very little uh, as, as they watched uh, the, the situation in Syria deteriorate.
1: I think it's important also to debunk the common assumption that Syria was a relatively well-behaved state before 2011, that, you know, the scale of atrocities has increased in such a mind-boggling manner that we assume, oh, that was the turning point. Assad felt threatened and then he did this. And I think it's important to step back a little and first, if we go all the way back to the late 1970s, I know you're a fan of history, you were in Tehran when uh, history was made, that the ties to Iran go all the way back to that time, to Hafez al-Assad having a very deep relationship with Iran. for some. Com- complicated reasons. One is they both hated Iraq. They both hated Saddam Hussein and of course uh, uh, Hafez al-Assad was also the never reconciled to Arab peace with Israel of the kind that King Hussein in Jordan had or that Sadat had in Egypt and then Mubarak. So – and likewise, the, the ayatollahs who were running the show in Iran felt the same way about Israel. So they had this this convergence as well as a convergence over Lebanon, which they played a role in uh, you know, bringing to heel under Hezbollah and ultimately under Iran. And th- this happened – you know – during the Bush era, that there had been sort of hopes for a peace process in the 90s and even renewed hopes when George W. Bush was president. But you have to remember some of the first sanctions went on then because of what we learned about the Assad regime's role in the assassination uh, of Rafiq Hariri, the the Lebanese prime minister, who did so much to try to help stabilize that situation. Um, And there was uh, sanctions on others like Rami Makhlouf, a a key oligarch. I think it was 2008 when they went on. And, you know, it is a great book on sort of that period from around 2000 to 2002 by Andrew Tabler. He's a scholar, a colleague of ours now at the National Security Council. And it really helps remind you that there was really some bitter resentment between the US on the one hand and Syria and Iran on the other and that there was this brief period where people thought, oh, Bashar is a reformer. But it didn't just break down because he wasn't giving people any chance to criticize him. It also uh, sort of broke down fairly quickly because of his in- involvement in international terrorism alongside Iran.
0: Also, if I remember, during, during the U.S. intervention in Iraq, he was instrumental in bringing in various foreign fighters to take on the, the, the Americans.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about that. That's another thing. It was very much a sore point. Um, and, of course, that's something that Iran was doing as well. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, it seems a little bit unexpected in the sense that he was helping Sunni jihadis funnel themselves th- from the region through Syria uh, and, and into Iraq to fight the U.S. And, of course, then he would eventually be fighting with them himself. But that was that was definitely a serious issue. It's important to note, though, you know, like he
2: they've been also master manipulators of Sunni extremism. I mean, to see what they've done in Iraq, where he was sending, uh, uh, you know, terrorists to go to kill uh, American servicemen and women in Iraq. Um, And at the same time, you know, utilize that to 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 release uh, Sunni jihadists and and terrorists from jails that he had gotten, either that we had arrested in Afghanistan or somewhere else and and release them in order to show the world that, look, it is him against terrorism, that that's, that that's how Syria should be looked at. It's either ISIS or Assad. And that's absolutely not true. Um, as a matter of fact, um, you know, the Syrian people have had to face both Sunni extremists and and the Assad regime, this terrorism, you know, simultaneously um, as the situation developed uh, over time. But, you know, just to, to go back, I think it's important to also mention, you know, after those 12 months of nonviolent peaceful protests, the amount of killing that happened in jails, the, the utilization of everything from, uh, you know, live fire, of course, but to missiles and, and and Scud missiles going on against his own country. I mean, to think someone's launching Scud missiles at his own cities is, is something that's hard to fathom. And then we saw the the entrance of, of Iran and Hezbollah in a former, formal way, which, you know, I would argue that, that they have an enormous amount. I mean, they, they essentially own Syria. Um, I think General McMaster has mentioned in the past that 80% of the ground troops were the Iranian troops, and then he had also the entire um, Russian Air Force that was backing him. And so with all these militias, Hezbollah, Iranian forces, uh, uh, and the Russian Air Force, it's important to remember that he still has not been able to get control of the entire country. He has not been able to do that. And that's because he is fighting against his his entire population um, on behalf of
0: occupying forces. There was the, uh, you're saying the, the very peaceful protests, the... The very brutal repression of the protesters. Um, it, we began to have a, a civil war situation. As I recall, President Obama was advised by many in his national security cabinet, people like Hillary Clinton, David, we sh- Petraeus, David Petraeus, 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 right, that we should be. I think uh, Bob Gates is as well. Yeah. Well, we should be supporting um, the opposition. To Assad, and he said no. He wasn't going to do that. That they he didn't he didn't see any good reason to do that. He didn't want to be involved in another Middle East conflict. So he was going to simply uh, stay out of it. Um, you can't absolutely be sure of this, but one can th- think of the possibility that if they if, if these so pro freedom forces had been supported, maybe there wouldn't have been a civil war. Maybe he would have been brought down in large measure because of the following, and that is. Assad is of course an Alawite. What is an Alawite? It's a minority in the country. Um, it is sometimes seen as a branch of Shiism. I think if Alawites were in Iran, they'd be seen as heretics. They would never be seen as, as cousins to Shia. He didn't have enough troops because if he only had Alawites essentially supporting them, he's going to fall because of the Sunni majority is going to be stronger. That was what a lot of people predicted is what people in the state department said, we don't need people supporting the Obama position. We don't need to support anybody outside because it's just a matter of time. But then as you, 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 you talked about this a little bit. You had the reinforcements come in. You had the Iranians from the Islamic Republic of Iran. You had Hezbollah, Iran's proxy in Lebanon and uh, Putin saw I've got an opportunity here, an opportunity to do what? An opportunity to reestablish Russian presence in the Middle East and have ports, uh, warm water ports on the Mediterranean. I can do that.
1: Just how decisive Putin's intervention was yes. even compared to the others that Hezbollah was coming in and Iran wasn't just bringing in militias and setting up militias, it was sending its own Revolutionary Guard and it took heavy casualties that, you know, at first it had sort of this model where the Revolutionary Guard officers would lead uh, the you know local or imported militia from Pakistan, Afghanistan, other Shiites in the region, Iraq. Um, but then as things got worse and worse, because despite these various reinforcements, Assad was losing territory rapidly. Rapidly, and there was a sense that everything might fall including Damascus and so Iran sent its own you know sort of enlisted rank and file in to do the fighting and that's when the, you know the casualty shot up significantly mm-hmm. and you know the conventional wisdom was we were counting the months in 2015 until Assad fell mm-hmm. and then it's when Putin uh, very interestingly it's, it's basically right after the nuclear deal so you have the P5 plus one basically the US led nuclear deal uh, in July 2015 and then within two months you have Putin and go into Syria, um, and it's really the the air cover. You know, really amplifies the value of the other troops on the ground, and the uh, you start having a, a period. I guess from late 2015 through the end of 2016, that's when you get all the way to sort of the taking Aleppo, the all of Aleppo out of the hands, so that basically Syria's the north-south corridor, sort of parallel to the coast, is fully in his control, and the sort of the main population centers, and and that's sort of the big turn. But then one issue we we need to bring up and discuss a little more is the famous red line incident of 2013. And so I think it's in good in, in context. You know, we don't know yet what Putin's going to do, but this is an early phase where America has a lot of latitude, right? Russia's not in. Its air force isn't there. We can have a no-fly zone if we want. We can take quite a few punitive measures. And yet America stands down despite the explicit red line, which says if you use chemical weapons, you'll pay a price. And it wasn't just a minor use. It wasn't a pinprick. I and mean, it's an estimated 1,400 people, mm-hmm. almost all civilians killed in a single attack. And and yet we don't do anything. It's
2: also important to remember at that point there was no ISIS. I mean, when 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 this sort of the peaceful revolution. Um, turned violent, and it was it was it was the it was people within the Assad's, Assad's military themselves that decided they didn't want to shoot against their own civilians, and so they decided to defect. And once you defect, um, you know you're defecting alongside your entire family. You're targeted, your extended family targeted, and their role became to protect the protesters. I think people forget that even until today, people go out and protest, civilians go out and demonstrate against the regime, against ISIS as well, and against any of these forces that are trying to hijack uh, the revolution in, in the court. goals and values of it. But when we refuse to to help um, the opposition uh, or or help them very very in a very small way. It was when there was no extremists to to the levels that happened after uh, the world sort of turned a blind eye to what was happening there. And it was people that served in a secular regime army for many years. These were people that were not uh, religious extremists or else, and still represented a wide swath of, of, of all the different aspects of the Syrian uh, people. And so there was very you know the, the excuse of. The, the lack of support um, was re- was really unfortunate, and and then that also helped result uh, in the rise of extremists Um, but Mm the chemical weapons as well it's important to understand that there were hundreds of chemical weapons attacks Mm -hmm. we decided that that attack would be one that is big Mm -hmm. enough to cross the threshold of the red line that was set by president obama Um, but that was after many smaller chemical attacks that were used where the regime as it usually does sort of tests the waters these are are we, you know, is it okay for us to use chemical weapons against civilians? I guess so, and, and continue to do so. And when we didn't act um, in that August attack of 1,400 people, mostly women and children that were killed, hundreds of other
1: chemical attacks ensued afterwards as well. John Kerry's speech, basically when the administration was sort of signaling at Woodstrike, he's really he's in these Churchillian tones invoking Munich and the the essential need for the United States to stand up for what is right and for international order. And then of course afterwards it's it's sort of rewritten by the president himself and and by Ben Rhodes talking about how this was their proudest moment of doing nothing because they resisted the so-called blob that is constantly pushing America into war. And it's interesting that they could still say that even seeing that a failure to act then contributed so much to the emergence of ISIS which forced us to act that exactly what people were saying if you don't deal with this threat if you don't deal with the instability same related to the withdrawal from Iraq prematurely you're going to cause more and what did happen some we we thought Al Qaeda was the baddest on the block and then they you know we found the Islamic state as its offshoot there you know we have massacres uh, ultimately in Orlando San Bernardino Paris Brussels and we're you know we had to send troops back thankfully it was many fewer um but you know the result was similar
0: what is it that putin wanted and continues to want in in syria
2: i think the you know he has the the one port in tartus the only russian port on the mediterranean i think that's important i think in a, in a big way i mean i remember in our work in, in sort of advocating on, on behalf of the civilians in syria and, and under the last administration. Um, one thing I think that Putin wanted was to sort of almost bring back the Soviet Union. 2015,
1: we, you have to remember, that's only a little more than a year after his invasion, of, well, his annexation of Crimea and invasion of Crimea, then his invasion of parts of eastern Ukraine, which you know results in sanctions being placed on him, after all, by Obama, by the Europeans. And it, it's part of the pushback. He's showing there's another place where he is essential, where you don't solve problems or you don't avoid problems unless you work with Vladimir Putin and the Russians. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's another front and it's also you know returning to that region after 40 years and in a sense after the, the Yom Kippur War and Sadat sort of joining with the Americans to have peace with Israel, Russia was sidelined and now it's back.
0: Putin's view is that whether you're a czar or a commissar, your job is the same. It's to expand the empire, Russian empire, Soviet empire. It doesn't matter. So the civil war rolls out and you start to have 5,000, 10,000. Twenty thousand. We're probably up over a half million people killed in Syria. Are we not?
2: Yeah, um, at least, uh, and and I think the United Nations stopped counting somewhere around four hundred thousand, around half a million. But but I think that's a conservative estimate, looking at how many people have been killed. And you look at the displaced. I mean, yeah. more than half the population, um, by some estimates, like you know ten to fourteen million out of a country that has twenty-three million people. Uh, The refugees uh, account for millions, but also you have millions uh, more than there are refugees of internally displaced that are now living, uh, you know, in fear of the regime. And and also... Important to remember, when when ISIS came on the scene, it focused on fighting the Syrian people. It focused on fighting the opposition. I mean, our organization um, lost four of our, our staff. We lost two to the Assad regime, uh, uh, taken and, and uh, tortured to death. And then we lost two to ISIS, taken and beheaded. Mm. And that's just a microcosm of what the Syrian people have faced overall. Um, you know, ISIS and Assad aren't friends, but they both have mutual interests, which is... For Assad, he wants to say it's only me or these terrorists. Um, for ISIS, they understand that it's the Syrian people uh, that that are the biggest threat to them, and so they both sort of focused on on them. and And so, if you watch from the beginning, the Assad regime mentioned, look, even during the nonviolent peaceful protests. We're the only ones protecting minorities, and we're the ones that are fighting against extremists. And sort of, he brought these extremists to fruition to be able to to continue, the, you know, to, to bring his own sort of prophecy. But never protected minorities. As a matter of fact, he you know, you could ask the Christians in Lebanon and others of, of, of what he has done in, and in Syria. Um, I work with uh, a defector who worked for the Assad regime. His name is Caesar. Mm. And Caesar is a military photographer. And and I want to tell the story to just give an idea of what's happening also in jails because we're looking at the Massive amounts of displaced people, half a million killed by the aerial bombardment, all of that stuff. But hundreds of thousands of civilians, men, women, children, elderly, are sitting in Assad jails. And there was a a gentleman who worked as a military police photographer for the Assad regime, and his job was to take photos of any accidents that happened under the auspices of the Ministry of Defense, so a drowning or a suicide or a fire. Um, In the beginning, during the peaceful protests in, in March and April of 2011, he was told to go take pictures of instances of death that happened within regime security uh, branches. And when he went, he he perceived these people as people that were very obviously tortured to death. And this is a guy who wasn't political, wasn't with the opposition or the regime or anything, was just sort of going about his day. And when he saw this, he wanted to... (laughs) have nothing to do with it, and actually reached out to, to through uh, a relative of his to say, can you help me get out? And mm-hmm. um, the answer was, of course, happy to help, but would you stay? Uh, and, and this gentleman, a, a true hero, stayed for two and a half years. And in Damascus alone documented 55,000 men, women, children, and elderly tortured to death in the, some of the most horrendous mm-hmm. ways. That's one city that is uh, 55,000 photos of, uh, you know, all these civilians in one city and in only two and a half years, so a snapshot both in time and geography of what happens all over Syria. So you know, I was the ongoing massacres that happen in the dungeons of the Assad regime, uh, and I've spoken to to you know people, former detainees that would tell me, you know, I couldn't tell like a mother trying to tell her son or daughter a story to go to sleep, um, that that baby was born and raised in these dungeons. So when you say, um, you know tell them a story about a, a bird that flies into a tree, and the child is like, well, what's a bird? What's a tree? I mean, this sort of horror, you know, the fact that it unfolds today, and uh, the photographer who worked for the regime, the evidence, which is unequivocal, most powerful evidence that, that there is, um, has still not stirred anyone to, to see the true evil of this regime is or do anything about it is, is truly horrific. So I would say hundreds of thousands killed in Assad regime jails and remain in there, about almost 14 million people displaced and well over half a million that have been killed by the destruction that's unfolding and it continues to unfold today um, are, are the numbers. And, and I think it's staggering. It really is a never again moment. And
0: I, I, and I want to emphasize at this point the lack of attention from the media, the lack of attention from the United Nations, the lack of attention from the so-called international community i mean just recently there was an airstrike at the kafra novel mm-hmm. hospital the 30th facility to be bombed during this most recent campaign leaving hundreds of thousands of people with no medical access seems to me this is clearly a war crime yet you don't hear imagine if something like that hospitals being 30 hospitals being bombed in europe you would hear about it imagine if it were hospitals being bombed in gaza which you would hear about it imagine I don't know, almost anywhere else in the world. but Because it's Syria, well, it's sort of like, well, boys will be boys. What are you going to do? And now part of this, I know it's very difficult. There are journalists who have gone in there and gotten themselves killed, trying to cover it. But that alone is not the reason this, that, that so much of the world simply has decided to turn a blind eye to what has been going on in Syria and to say there's nothing we can do, nothing we want to do, and we don't even want to talk about it.
2: You know, we were so desperate at some at one point, those hospitals, including the hospital that you mentioned, the coordinates of the hospitals, because hospitals were being targeted so systematically, this wasn't collateral damage, this wasn't by accident. Yeah. The, the coordinates of some of the hospitals were given through the United Nations to the Russians to say, OK, here are where these hospitals are. And that's probably a horrible mistake because all of these hospitals were bombed after they received the coordinates of these hospitals. Like you said, if, if the United States... Accidentally bombs a hospital in Afghanistan. There should be outrage, and that's, that's, of course. And But the fact that this happens regularly, that they're targeted, that schools, and we run a school, uh, a school for orphans in Idlib. It's actually supported by uh, non-Syrian Americans from Arkansas, Florida, mm. other places. Mm. And mm. Um, we've had to move them underground um, because schools are targeted regularly. And so we had to, like, find a bunker where they can go to school there. Um, the fact that this is a systematic targeting of civilian infrastructure and there's very little outrage about it, it boggles my mind. I I don't understand. Um, You know, whenever we, you know, anything happens in the world, you see people coming out and and protesting and saying, you know, no war and stuff. Well, what about Russian imperialism? What about Iranian imperialism? What about the fact that these people target civilians on purpose? Uh, You know, that's part of their strategy. If you look at Syria specifically, number one, I think it's important to, whether people agree or disagree with the Iran deal, the biggest losers of that deal were the Syrian people. The cash, the money, the, the, the relief all resulted in greater deaths of civilians. As Iran came to Syria, they weren't trying to just simply allow the, you know, help their ally, the regime sort of to, to, to stay there. But it was a takeover of the country overall. In the, in the strategy that the regime has taken to recapture the areas that were uh, taken away f- uh, from him by the opposition, it was to displace massive ar- amounts of people detain the rest or uh, or kill so displacement detention or or murder are uh, was was the fate of the civilians and, and also unfortunately the fate of the people of the 4 million or so people in idlib if if we continue to do nothing about this and then take their properties and give them to iranian backed militias uh, and and you have complete demographic changes that are happening at a very strategic level really you know, led by Iran, not, not, some people may think that this is sort of an arbitrary military policy that the Assad regime is doing, you know, just displaced populations, move it on. But no, this is a strategy led by the Iranians to change the demographics of Syria, a country that they should not be able to colonize. I mean, people in Syria do not want Iran coming over, but it's an Iranian occupation of Syria in every sense of the word. And beyond that, now they're installing universities, schools. Uh, uh, religious centers all over uh, the country, including the areas in the east uh, close to where we have uh, control with our partner forces um, uh, and making sure that they're sort of changing the demographics of of those that remain in Syria to people that are under the command of the supreme leader in Iran under the command of Qom and Tehran um, and this is changing the very nature of what Syria is. I mean, it's essentially becoming a, an Iranian province. Um, and, 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 of course, the Assad regime is happy to do so because the Assad regime is no longer in real control. I would argue that Iran has a lot more leverage uh, on, on the Assad regime than even the Russians have. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the massive ground troops that they
1: have, the the development that they're doing there. They have full reign in Syria. And and an I, important question look at is why. Why is Iran so... Ab- committed, obsessed even, to exerting control over Syria. Syria is far smaller, far less wealthy than Iran, a fraction of the oil resources. You know, we talked a little before, yeah, it was an ally against Saddam, but, you know, Iran has a lot of problems to deal with at home and a population isn't exactly happy with the regime there. And even says, why are you spending billions? The State Department says likely 16 billion. Uh, we've estimated even more that there's, it could be, you know, several billion at least each year of the war. So what is it? So where? And this is also a focus uh, of the Burning Bridge monograph that we did on the land corridor. And a huge part of it is to step back and say Iran has this mission to export its revolution, that it's never stepped away from this. It's become a more uh, sectarian and narrowly Shiite mission over time but it began in the early 1980s is when they started building Hezbollah and that was far and away their most successful example. A lot of the others sort of petered out. There was terrorism across the Gulf. They hoped there would be Hezbollah in various Gulf states but it's the one in Lebanon that took hold and eventually has become now essentially in all but name, the one that controls the state. And the initial talk of a land bridge in the first years of the Civil War was – saying we cannot afford to be cut off from Lebanon. It is essential for us to be providing arms and other forms of support to Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. If Syria falls, even worse, if it becomes a radical Sunni regime, we are going to lose that. Why is Hezbollah so important? Both as a symbol, both because it trains Iranian affiliates throughout the world or in Iraq, right? You had the, the people killing Americans were often trained by Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, And so also in 2006, there's a Hezbollah war with Israel. And in a lot of ways, this is a strategic victory for Iran because really no Arab military had gone toe-to-toe with the Israelis and come out looking nearly as good. It was still a punishing uh, pyrrhic victory in some respects. But the difference is it was left standing. It had a certain prestige. And Iran has been rearming it ever since. And it couldn't afford to have that corridor cut off. And then there's been a second dimension as well, which is over time, they realized we have one front to the north of Israel. Now we want a second front there too on the sort of the Syrian Golan Heights. And why is Israel launching hundreds of airstrikes again and again, originally sort of denying it but now saying, yeah, we're targeting it? They are trying to build up a revolutionary guard base for attacking Israel. So you have two fronts in the north and for the ultimate vision of wiping out Israel.
2: And what's, what's most um, sort of – I mean you look at the amount of blood and money that the Iranians have sacrificed in Syria killing – Syrian people, uh, and so on. It just shows how important Syria is to them. I mean, even in the bigger scheme of things, like, uh, David mentioned, I mean, Syria is key. It is key to continuing the arming and support of Hezbollah. It is key to opening up that second front, uh, against Israel. It is key. And, uh, and, I mean, and, and to them, I, I, I must think that, you know, they never in a million years thought that they'd be able to take Syria the way that, that they have. They, of course, under Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad, they always had a, a very reliable partner an ally in, in the Syrian regimes. But today they, they own it. Uh, and, and the amount, uh, you know, how much there's, even when they were under sanctions, the amount of money that they spent to just make sure that they completely entrenched themselves in Syria is is something that, um, that, you know, I would have said if, if you know, if, if we wanted to push back against the Iranians, there's no better place than, do it, than, than in Syria to do it because it is, it is the one place where they are – I mean humanitarian – I mean crimes against humanity that, that they're doing is, is just unfathomable. Um, so just it's the moral right thing to do but also from a national security and, and national strategic interests, it is in Syria where Iran can be and must be stopped.
1: President Obama said, you have to worry about the quagmire. There is a way to avoid it. This is not the first time that foreign powers have effectively intervened uh, by sort of raising local forces. And in fact, in most counterinsurgencies throughout history, raised where a foreign power played a key role, they also had even more local allies. And even when the U.S. did well in the later stages of the Iraq war during the surge, it was also a point where we probably were able to put two or three Iraqis in the national security forces in the field in addition to our own. And, you know, the gain then is to be able to do something like that with a far smaller force. So with 2,000 Americans, a scattering of other Europeans, there's been, the Pentagon estimates, you know, 60,000 Syrians, Kurdish and Arab helping us to fight ISIS. So, you know, the advice I've said I would give to the Trump White House if they asked what to do is not to say it's time for us to pull out now. We have to stop this. It's I did better than everyone who came before me. Bush had 150,000 in Iraq and it took a lot of blood and treasure before he turned that around. Uh, Obama did 100,000 in, in Afghanistan and it only kept getting worse. And here, since the credit doesn't all go to President Trump, part of this mission started under President Obama. Um, but here it was. This is economy of force. This is something sustainable. And sustainability matters when you're dealing with an enemy who believes it's committed to an endless war. We fear that term. It is a something... a, a a divine objective for the Islamic State and for other Confederate extremists. So we need to have a strategy that can match theirs. We can't, you know, sort of fold up our tents and go home at any point because that's just an invitation for them to follow, as they did when they had free reign in sort of the caliphate area in Syria and Iraq. Where did the attacks go? Brussels, Paris. And of course, they were also far more effective at inspiring that they looked like winners. And when they looked like that, they had both tens of thousands coming from abroad to fight there, giving up relatively cushy lives and others simply inspired to gun others down in Orlando or San Bernardino. So if you don't have a choice, you want to be engaged in as sustainable a manner as possible. So uh, in the Burning Bridge monograph, in the midterm assessment of the Trump administration that we did here at FDD, we've been very vocal about talking about the strategic importance of maintaining that position. And moreover, we happen to get the good real estate sort of without really intending it. We went where ISIS was. Uh, we didn't say, where are we going to find the natural resources? But ISIS happened to be where all of Syria's oil is, and it, it's not—it's not Saudi Arabia, it's not Iran, it's not even Kuwait. But it was producing several hundred thousand barrels a day, almost all from that area. That area is also its breadbasket. It's a place with hydroelectric resources and with some gas resources as well, though not as high a percentage. So, if we want to put pressure on Assad in any kind to stop atrocities, to do anything strategic, you don't want to hand back that slice of Syria to him. It is doing Iran's work for it. It's bankrolling Iran uh, and Syria
2: president has said in the thing in the campaign in the past you know like don't just give the oil to iran they gave it away this is literally would be giving the oil to iran i mean just like david said the breadbasket and the oil of the 95 of the whole syrian economy um this is 30 percent of the country it's, it's a huge chunk do so you look at the sort of very low cost high value uh military presence that we have there i mean we've had the honor of working with the, the military in, in, in Syria and in trying to support the mission against ISIS. Um, and it is key. It is key that we do not pull out uh, prematurely to uh, to have a political process and to not just give all of these resources directly to the Iranians. And by the way, this will allow the rise again of, of ISIS. Uh, and we'll have to come back in just with without the allies that we have today.
0: The allies we have there today are... We've been letting them take the point and supporting them, supporting them with combat aircraft, supporting them with special forces, supporting them with advisors. They've been doing a great job. Arabs, Kurds, and others—you don't want to abandon those people, and you do want to help them win because these you know, those are your those are your your people. That is part of how you have a sustainable uh, uh, long low intensity conflict which is what we have and we can lose it but otherwise but we but we can't do anything we can't stop it by by simply pulling out on the contrary that just inflames it further i would like to see more support from our nato allies with this than we have been getting by the way
2: from our NATO allies would would help convince the president that this is the right thing to do. I think there are some influences on the president that I think maybe give him the wrong impression of what our presence is there and why it's important. But one small example, too, of our presence is the 10th base uh, in Syria near, uh, a, a, by the way, there are tens of thousands of civilians that love the American base. Uh, this is a small base, maybe 200 or less uh, servicemen and women. And its mere presence forces Iran to spend Hundreds of millions of dollars more to ship its fighters and its weapons to Damascus because it sits literally on on that sort of highway that would go from Tehran to Beirut essentially um, so in, in in keeping that tiny base, we hurt Isis's funding and transportation uh, from east to west in Syria We stopped this Iranian land bridge, uh, that that causes it to have to find other ways to, to to send its weapons and aid, causing it hundreds of millions of dollars, and we're saving the lives of. of Women and children. I mean, that camp half of it is children uh, that are there, and they're there because they're terrified that if they leave that area, Iran and the Assad regime would uh, would kill them. They would perish, and 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 that's it. Just shows you know how you know as an example of how low cost and high value our presence is there, and how it is conducive to um, you know getting to a political solution. Otherwise, we pull out, we allow Sunni extremism to return, and we allow Iran to have it all
0: an organization called Human Rights Watch. Mm-hmm. It does some good work. It does some, I think, terrible work. Kenneth Roth uh, heads it. Uh, he recently tweeted out a defense of uh, Mohammed uh, Javad Zarif, the, far, the foreign minister of Iran, uh, essentially saying what a good guy and a helpful guy he is. As if he doesn't know or doesn't recognize the incredible damage, the the thousands of deaths, the displacement, the imperialism, the colonialism, all the things we talked about, that he would go on record praising a a senior official of the Islamic Republic of Iran. i just going to say it's mind-boggling and I just want to... Uh, I just want to express that. Yeah,
1: it's you know you might say he hasn't been reading his own organization's publications. That one of the areas where they've probably done their better work is documenting a lot of atrocities in Syria, and Iran has been involved from the very beginning. You know there are ones where Russia takes the lead on the massacres, and of course it has the airplanes, so it's the one that bombs most of the hospitals. Um, but you know the Iranian militia, as well as the Iranian-backed militia in Iraq, have committed numerous massacres of civilians, and it's completely implicated. Of course, it's propaganda up this regime, it, every aspect of its infrastructure has been supported by Iran. Um, so he should just go back to his own reports. There was one released just a couple weeks ago, looking at how Assad has completely hijacked the U.N. aid process. It's really shameful that the U.N. basically lets Assad give the orders that if he doesn't want something to go to a besieged area, it doesn't. In, in effect, it's it's sort of second in complicity in war crimes, because denying a besieged population food and even bargaining to make sure that it goes to Assad's own people and not the other side or to one ethnicity and not another Um, and this is what the UN has been sort of – effectively winking at for seven years. It, it goes on, in its own mind what it's doing is saying, as long as I get some food to those really desperate people, I'm doing the right thing. But at what point if a trickle goes to those in a besieged area while most goes to what Assad wants to control? So even in areas like uh, – one example in the Human Rights Report is Duma, which was there was chemical attacks that led to US strikes. How only a, a sliver of aid went there but in a, a nearby area that had a more pro-regime population was getting a surfeit of aid that it may not have even needed. I've talked to senior State Department officials who worked on this and some of them just got so fed up. There there was like a literal bargaining, bartering process where it's like, we want to send a convoy here to the people that need it. OK, well, I think you're going to have to send a few over there as well. And it's really a, sh- a shameful situation.
2: The Assad regime is in complete control of the United Nations aid that goes to Syria. And as a matter of fact, because – one of his weapons of war is besiegement and starvation of civilians. He, he uses that to that effect. So any money, the millions of dollars that people are spending thinking they're helping the Syrian people through the United Nations is going to the Assad regime. And and, that's, and it's also mind-boggling to, to hear um, Ken Roth's defense of, of – uh, of I think it was specifically about Zarif uh, being sanctioned uh, by the United States. Yeah, he'd like that idea. Uh, yeah, and, and, and it, 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 it's mind-boggling because, as David said – uh, Human Rights Watch has done a great job in highlighting the crimes that are happening Um committed by the Iranians, the the Russians and the regime in Syria specifically. And and so for someone who knows what's going on in Syria, who knows the role that Iran has played, Iran has killed more women and children and men, elderly, everybody in Syria than, than maybe any other country. Um, it, it, it does not make sense to sort of defend uh,
0: uh, Foreign Minister Zarif
2: or, or say that he shouldn't be sanctioned.
0: What do you recommend to the U.S.? To the Europe, to the so-called international community, kind of, what are your three or five major proposals? Well, first of all, I think to your listeners, you know, uh,
2: people look at something like Syria and they see such a complex conflict, and you know, there and there's terrorists, and there's Iran and Russia and Assad, and, and it's so complicated. And I think people tend to turn away, and unfortunately, the, it's Syria has become news wallpaper. So only 300 people died in Syria today. That's a good day. That's a problem. Syria is not used to war. It is not like um, Afghanistan or Somalia where they've lived in perpetual war for so long. Um, We lived under a dictatorship. Uh, It was horrible and people demanded their rights. And now they are facing some of the most horrific scenes of war that we've ever seen. And and I want to say that people can make a difference by raising awareness learn more about what's happening in Syria go to the US Holocaust Memorial Museum and see the exhibit um, you know take time to to learn about what's happening there's been now multiple documentaries the situation's so bad in Syria that the people are making documentaries about these horrific stories and these extraordinary civilians that are facing such evil and raise that in your social media call your representatives um, because you know, we often, you know, you look at Rwanda. I think if people knew that, you know, that, that there were these machetes that are being shipped and, and and you know, they would have done anything to do to stop these machetes from being shipped to slaughter 800,000 people in three months. So we always look back at these never again moments and say, well, you know, I would have done something. And I think history will judge us uh, if we stood by and did nothing. And the very least that you could do is call your representatives and 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 raise awareness even among your faith groups, your church or synagogue or or on your social media. In terms of what the United States can do, I think the U.S. Congress has had a bill called the Caesar Syria Civilian Protection Act of 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. Now it's passed the House of Representatives three times. Um, it has passed the Senate. But they haven't passed the same uh, version both in the House and Senate, and and what stopped it so far uh, uh, in the Senate has uh, has also been uh, Senator Rand Paul, um, uh, who's who's this. Even though we've had unanimous support for the bill, and so call your representatives uh, in the House and Senate and ask that they pass this bill. This bill focuses on the protection of civilians. It sanctions the heads of the different intelligence branches. It sanctions Iran and Russia for their support of the, uh, of the Assad regime. It, it sanctions, sanctions anything that, that the regime can use to kill civilians. And it is conducive to a political solution in Syria. When it comes to um, the, the killing of civilians inside Syrian regime jails, as I mentioned, there are hundreds of thousands in these dungeons we should start prosecutions of of these war criminals, and we should also remember that the Assad regime holds at least a dozen American citizens in these horrible dungeons, some of which, uh, and these are the ones that we believe are alive. He's also killed American civilians uh, in these prisons. So there should be the Department of Justice um, and other, there, there should be prosecutions, at least in national courts uh, of the Assad regime. Uh, in, in terms of Idlib province, in Idlib, the Assad regime in Iran uh, and the Russians' policy has been to, to push out all these populations from Damascus, Aleppo, and elsewhere. And now they're all in Idlib, the last rebel holdout in Syria. The current offensive, which is continues to escalate, will result in the death, displacement, or detention of almost 4 million people. This will also result in um, the doubling uh, potential of doubling of the refugees in Europe. And so we must do everything that we can to make Idlib a red line. We cannot allow an unabated, uh, reckless Uh, uh, military offensive to continue in Syria. The president has tweeted about that in the past uh, and to great effect. He's actually postponed that offensive from happening. This offensive has started again and it's going on. So it is in our interests to stop it both to you know, prevent the massive refugee flows and also to save countless lives, um, and and so these are some things that that we can do. I mean, the U.S. military can take over the airspace for Idlib. Um, you know, we can go after Al Qaeda and extremists that might be in that area, um, but we shouldn't just allow it a free for all where for Iranian ground troops and the regime forces and, and the Russian air force to continue to bombard these hospitals like the hospital that you mentioned, um, and and that includes our school, that includes people that we know, that includes people that that. The American people have supported directly on the ground, and it's been inspiring to see what ordinary Americans can do once they learn and care about what's happening. And and so I really encourage all your listeners to speak out about Syria, but to also help push for the Syria Civilian
1: Protection Act and to make sure that the Idlib offensive uh, does not continue. Well, remember, Iran is behind Syria, so a strong policy on Syria means a strong policy on Iran. Um, and of course, the sanctions we're putting on Iran have had a, a very big impact. And it's don't rush and negotiate a deal like the last one, which basically lets Syria be collateral damage. Make sure that we either deprive Iran of the resources to do, to do its damage in Syria or that it agrees in a verifiable way to stop it. Um, in terms of immediate moves to deny it resources, I've written in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere about the importance of stopping Iran's illicit oil shipments to Syria. In contravention of sanctions, there have been quite a few sanctions on uh, on Syria, EU sanctions, U.S. sanctions, but really terrible enforcement for a long time. There's been an improvement, but it's still an uphill battle. Um, one of the areas is the Suez Canal. The Egyptians are still letting uh, oil through, and it's a complicated issue, um, but there are ways that we can persuade them, because Iran ships do not behave in a safe or responsible manner, and I don't think they should be letting through. Um, Moaz mentioned the Caesar Bill. That's important. It really it extends the, the ambit of sanctions, that you have what's called secondary sanctions, that really anyone that touches certain parts of the Syrian economy, it's prohibited, and they can face real penalties penalties, Because there are still some people who pretend they're acting with private actors. Uh, that oh, I'm I'm just selling to you know this oil to a, a businessman in Syria. Um, and it was quoted in Reuters from an Italian uh, official, and th- that's a basically a fiction. And the inf- enforcement has to be tough. Sometimes the EU has been good on it, like when the UK just sees this tanker, the Iranian tanker bound f- um, for Syria. We've talked about staying in the key position we have uh, in Tanf and other parts of northeast Syria. We haven't even gotten a chance to talk about Turkey's complicated and problematic role. Um, At the same time, Trump wanted to pull out of Syria. He was hinting, I'm going to let Erdogan take over. Now, Erdogan is an Islamist, anti-Semitic, conspiracy-minded dictator. Uh, And, you know, thankfully, there was just sort of a victory for the opposition in Istanbul in local elections, but you cannot trust him to do anything in Syria. So we need a deal of, you know, basically where we say, Erdogan, we are going to make sure that no terrorists who are targeting you are going to be based out of northern Syria. But don't even think about using force to come across this border. Give it up permanently and that will protect our allies. We have an ongoing alliance with the Kurds. Um, I also would recommend people look in sort of the recommendation section in our uh, Burning Bridge monograph about specific measures we can take to amplify the pressure. Iraq is part of this puzzle. And the president does have to, I think, if he can exert moral leadership, it does matter. Moaz is right that tweets have, you know, we, we often joke about foreign policy by tweet, but those tweets put real doubt in the mind of dictators like Assad who are getting ready to launch their next offensive. We have to stand by the government's pledge that if they use chemical weapons again, we will launch more and more damaging strikes. Their entire air force should have been taken out last time they used chemical weapons. No excuse for that. So it, it's not an easy solution that will happen soon. I think the political solution or elections are likely a fiction, as long as Assad, the Russians and Iranians are in power. But we have levers and we have to keep pushing on them.
0: Syria has not gotten nearly the attention it deserves. I'm glad we could bring a little bit of light to it today and discuss it. Um, So thank you, David. And thank you, Moaz. And thanks to all of you who are with us today. Uh, Thanks for being here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to Policy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.